This is Senator James Langford from Oklahoma back with another episode of The Breakdown. The Breakdown is an opportunity to talk about some of the big topics of the day and break them down into smaller pieces. Our goal is to try to make you the smartest kid at the water cooler and to be able to be in dialogue with someone when a little thing comes up that everyone says but no one really understands. You'll be the one that will actually understand that a little bit deeper, hopefully based on our context today. If you want to be able to subscribe to The Breakdown, you can do that on all the different systems out there, SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify. Uh, you can subscribe to The Breakdown there so you can get it just on a regular basis. We'll send it to you about once a month uh, to be able to tune in on different topics of the day. The topic of the day today is what is going on in the country dealing with abortion and with life post Dobbs. Boy, there's been a lot of dialogue out there from lots of different folks and a lot of people running afraid to say uh, America is now supporting the life of children. Oh my gosh, what are we going to do? We'll have all these children out there. And then there's also all this dialogue about what about miscarriages? What about ectopic pregnancies? Uh, what about mail-in abortions? What, what about all these different things that are out there? We're going to try to drill down on that. And I have got with me two genuine experts uh, in the process today. I have Steve Daines, who is the senator from Montana. He also leads the pro-life caucus in the Senate. Steve, very glad to be able to have you not only as a partner here in the Senate, but to be able to have you on the podcast today. I don't think you've been on a podcast with us before. I haven't, Senator Langford, but uh, I always want to be the smartest kid at the water cooler. So I'm looking forward to uh, getting a lot smarter here. But just, I got to tell you, a big heartfelt thank you, Senator Langford, for what you are doing here in Washington, D.C. and across our country, leading leading the fight uh, to protect our babies and our moms. Well, glad to be able to be a part of that. Uh, there's been five decades now of people speaking out for the benefit of children, and that conversation is still continuing on, even post-Dobbs in this. But you've been very faithful, very engaged in the pro-life movement. You've been outspoken on this. You and your wife, Cindy, both. Uh, we joke around about this because we're both married to a Cindy, though it's a different Cindy. They're friends as well. We're friends. And uh, glad to be able to connect with you and had you, have you here. And we're both going to get a chance uh, to be able to listen to Dr. Christina Francis. Uh, Dr. Francis is the CEO-elect and board member of the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists. That's almost 7,000 OBGYNs across the country. It's the largest pro-life medical group actually in the world. She has been in Kenya working there. She has uh, worked at all kinds of places to be able to help bring advice, counsel. Uh, she's been very engaged with teaching students and a next generation of OBGYNs coming up behind her in that. But she's been very, very involved in this, not only working with orphans in uh, Romania and in Burma, uh, but just working with patients and with moms uh, for years and years. So really grateful to be able to your counsel. Uh, I can talk a lot about legislative issues on the pro-life movement, uh, but you get me on the medical side and I can tell you about the two daughters that are in my life uh, because I was there for the birth of both of those. But that's about as far as I go. But I've watched two births. Dr. Francis, how many births have you been around and children have you been around? Well, first, let me just thank both of you for having me on the podcast. It's a true honor to be with you. And, um, you know, I get this question a lot, and I really wish that I would have kept really good numbers on this, but um, it numbers in the thousands at this point of, of babies that I've delivered. So it's it's the best job in the world and uh, can't imagine doing anything else. I, I can't imagine you wouldn't just put a little stroke count on your st a stethoscope every time you do a delivery just to be able to keep a, <laughs> keep a count on that. But it's really great to be able to have you. We've talked before. We pick your brain often. Uh, the organization that you lead with almost 7,000 physicians are very engaged in these issues about life and about children and pregnancies and the complications. 
Steve and I both heard this a lot from people. Uh, immediately after the Supreme Court came out with the Dobbs decision at the end of June, there was an immediate push that this is going to uh, cause women that have miscarriages to not be able to get treatment. Uh, it's going to cause all kinds of other medical conditions. Uh, and suddenly the medical arguments started getting thrown out there. You've been pulled into several legislatures. In fact, we're picking your brain today. Steve and I are both here in Washington, D.C. You're actually in Indiana today that we're interviewing you because you're testifying there. You've testified before in Congress in Washington, D.C. as a medical professional as well. So I'm sure you've been bombarded with here are the concerns that are out there that if Dobbs is passed or if Dobbs goes into place, this is the chaos that's going to happen in the medical crisis that will happen for so many folks. What are you hearing first in this uh, that you would say that's a total misconception uh, and, and, and quite frankly, just distortion of the truth? Yeah, well, there's a lot of misinformation out there right now, and and I almost hate to use that phrase or that term because it, I feel like it's thrown around so loosely nowadays. But you know, there's a lot of of false information that's being spread, and and what really breaks my heart first and foremost is that I think that there's a lot of women out there that are really scared right now because they're hearing this and they're thinking you know, I had an ectopic pregnancy or I experienced a miscarriage. Is it true that I'm not going to be able to receive that care anymore? Um, and I want to reassure women that are listening that nothing could be further from the truth. Um, we have always been able to take care of these conditions, whether it be miscarriage where a woman has lost a baby or whether it be life-threatening conditions like an ectopic pregnancy or an infection in the uterus. You know, I've always uh, practiced pro-life medicine. I've never performed an abortion. I've never intentionally ended the life of my fetal patient. And yet I have always been able to provide life-saving care to my patients. Even when I did my residency at a Catholic hospital that did not do elective abortions, we were always able to take care of ectopic pregnancies. And the reason for that is twofold. One, because the intent of an abortion is to end the life of that fetal human being. And in fact, the Royal College of OBGYNs, so the main medical organization for OBGYNs in the UK, actually has a statement in one of their documents that says the purpose of an abortion is to produce a dead fetus and the process of the abortion should accomplish that. So that's the whole intent of an abortion is to is to end the life of that fetal human being. That's not our intent when we intervene uh, to save a woman's life in the case of an ectopic pregnancy or to clear her uterus when her baby has already passed to help you know remove that baby from her uterus. So I want to help women feel assured that they are still going to receive the life-affirming and life-saving treatments that they've always been able to receive. Those weren't legal because Roe was in place. They were legal because that's the appropriate thing to do medically. Makes a big difference. So let, let me just start with the miscarriage side of it. Incredibly painful moment uh, for any family as they're walking through that process. I have a friend of mine that right now is walking through the difficulty of them losing a child uh, through a miscarriage. It's an incredibly difficult moment for them. Uh, so the, the first thing that comes out is uh, when, when all this misinformation is put out there that when you have a miscarriage and it's incredibly difficult, on top of that, you're not going to be able to get medical treatment. You're telling me all 50 states, including my own in Oklahoma, that have laws about protecting uh, the life of children, they're still going to be able to do a medical procedure to be able to help a, a woman that's had a miscarriage. Absolutely. You know, you're right. Miscarriage is one of, I think, the most heartbreaking things that a family can go through. And I've often told people, you know, I, I love my job because usually it's very happy, but when it's sad, it's really sad. And one of the hardest things to walk through with my patients and their families is the loss of a child, whether that be, you know, shortly after birth or before birth. 
I think the reason that there is some confusion is because sometimes the procedures that we use to treat a miscarriage are similar to the procedures that are used um, for performing abortion. So, for example, a first trimester miscarriage can be treated with medication, but it can also be treated with surgery. And if a woman has a surgery, it's a, a surgery called a DNC or a dilation and curatage. That same kind of surgery can be used to perform an elective abortion in the first trimester where you have a living fetal human being whose life has ended through that procedure. But it's the intent of the procedure and the reason that we're doing it that's so important. And I don't think in any other area of medicine, anyone would equate, you know, helping uh, helping evacuate uh, a, a baby who has already died with intentionally ending the life of that preborn child. You know, intent is so much of what we do in medicine. I, I use this example oftentimes recently that, you know, when I do a C-section, my intent is to ease the course of an abnormal labor or to intervene when that, when that preborn child is in distress. But, I, you know, it's kind of a brutal procedure if, if anybody's ever seen a C-section. I have up close and personal. <laughs> I won't go into the details. Don't worry about that. But, um, you know, but it, it could be seen as a brutal procedure if you didn't understand the intent behind it. And my intent is to save the life of that baby or to help that mom accomplish a delivery that she couldn't accomplish otherwise. If I was doing that with the intent of harming the woman um, or if I was doing that with the intent to end the life of that baby, that would be a completely different procedure. And I think we just intuitively understand that that intent actually plays a huge role in what we do in medicine. And so that is how those procedures are different. A DNC done with the intent of removing a child who has already died versus a DNC done with the intent of ending an innocent human life. Um, and so, you know, never before has there been confusion over this. I have to say this in the medical community, there's never been a confusion on the part of doctors of a miscarriage treatment being the same as an abortion. And yet all of a sudden now, really since that, draft opinion was leaked. And I think the writing was kind of on the wall that Roe was going to get overturned. Now, all of a sudden, you hear abortion supporters talking about ectopic pregnancies and miscarriages. And I really think that it's intentional confusion on their part. And I think that it's because they can't defend their real position, which is they want abortion through all nine months of pregnancy on demand without any restrictions, but they know that that's not a defensible position. Right. And nor nor should it be. And that one of the things I've heard, another misconception that's been out there, or just you, you can tell me one way or the other on that, and we've not mm -hmm. spoken about this, but out there now is, well, if there's not abortion that's provided in a state, if you have a situation like this with a miscarriage, there won't be enough trained doctors to be able to know what to do. If they don't also perform abortions out there, then you're going to lose the ability in case there is a medical emergency or if there's a later term miscarriage uh, that happens that have to have additional medical procedures with that. There won't be enough doctors anymore to be able to take care of women and there'll be a shortage and it'll be life threatening. Is it true? Not true. It is not true at all. And I'm so glad that you asked about that because I heard that even today at the state house um, that, you know, all of a sudden we're going to have physicians who are ill-trained to take care of patients. Nothing could be further from the truth. Just ask any resident, again, who trained at a Catholic hospital where abortions are not performed like I did. We learn as part of our routine training how to empty a woman's uterus in the case of a miscarriage. And so we will be able to do that. We'll be able to treat ectopic pregnancies. You know, I've, I've told several people recently, when I finished my residency, not having ever done a single abortion, 
I could have, if I wanted to, gone the very next day and gotten a job at Planned Parenthood doing abortions all day, every day. I would have had the technical training that I needed to be able to do that. And all OBGYN residents who and physicians who have been well-trained have the technical training that they would need to do that. But we're still left with the fact that 93% of OBGYNs in this country don't do abortions. It's not because they're not trained to do abortions. It's because they make a choice not to do them because they understand that it's not healthcare and that it ends the life of their of one of their patients, of their fetal patient. Steve, you have a question on that as well? I, I do. Dr. Francis, fascinating to, to hear from a true expert like you you are. Um, one of the things we've seen is not just uh, the spread of mis- misinformation coming from you know the general public, but actually from medical professionals. We've seen this from nurses and even doctors who are, are pro-abortion. And how, how, have you seen that? We've seen that with some nurses. And in our own family, we have two, two daughters and two sons. Um, they've got a lot of friends, uh, you know, good, well-meaning folks here who are somehow spreading these viral, I was going to call them lies about ectopic pregnancies and so forth. What do you suggest to those who are listening? How do we combat that? What do we need to do when we when we hear these these lies? Yeah, well, you know, I think especially one thing that's really been on my heart a lot lately, you know, since the Dobbs decision is our country is so divided right now over so many issues, you know, and I think it's very easy to demonize those that are on the other side of this issue from us, you know, whether you be pro-choice and you demonize a pro-lifer or vice versa. I think it's important to remember that many of these physicians, many of these nurses, honestly, are products of their training. So this is what they have been told in their medical training, um, that abortion is necessary, that it's healthcare, because they're not hearing the medical evidence, the overwhelming medical evidence that exists that says not only is that that fetal human being, a human being from the moment of fertilization, but also all of the medical evidence that exists that show the harms of elective abortion for women. And to understand that abortion is an essential health care and to understand the difference between treating an ectopic pregnancy and a miscarriage. So I think that's one thing to understand is that many times I think these, these physicians or nurses that are saying these things, they really are well-intentioned. They really do want to help women. They're just misinformed about what that means. Um, but I think, you know, I think who does lie at fault, honestly, in this are the major medical organizations who have set aside sound science and sound medicine uh, in favor of a political agenda. And the worst offender among these is the, unfortunately, is the American College of OBGYNs, um, you know, who claim to represent 60,000 OBGYNs across the country, and yet they've never surveyed their membership on whether or not their membership is okay with these radical abortion policies that they have put into place. And so, so many um, physicians are, you know, in, uh, under the, the learning and the guidance of ACOG and they're hearing this and they assume that it must be based on good medical evidence when actually it's not. Dr. Francis, since we have an expert here who's literally you know, delivered thousands of babies, so many you've lost count. Yeah, we talk about exceptions as it relates to the, you know, the pro-life community and to think about the life of the mother. In, in your experience, how often does that come up in what you've seen, where the life of the mother here, something you've got away as it relates to you know, versus the life of the baby? Yeah. So it's a great question because, you know, I think that there are some in the pro-life community who think that this doesn't happen. I'm not saying that's what you're saying, but, you know, I, I've heard that from people. And, and I think it's important to understand that it actually does happen. 
Um, thankfully, most times when that situation comes up, it's post viability, meaning we're at the point in the pregnancy where that baby can survive outside of mom. In that situation, there's no question. You just get mom delivered, you take care of mom, you take care of baby. There is never a need for an abortion after baby is viable. Never, never a medical indication for an abortion. You just deliver her. The rare circumstances, and thankfully they are rare, where they that comes up pre-viability, that's really where sort of the ethical considerations have to come in. You know, but again, we are pro-life in all circumstances. And if mom dies, baby is gonna die as well. And so that's when we have to intervene in order to save who we can. Right. If we can save both of them, then absolutely we save both of them. But if we can't, then we do need to intervene to save the mom. But we can do that in a way that respects the dignity of that child, that respects the fact that oftentimes they can feel pain. And so leaves them intact, delivers them in a way that respects their dignity, gives that family an intact child to hold and to grieve um, to help, you know, with their sort of mental health and their healing and their grieving process. And again, respects the dignity of that child. So it's, you know, we can induce labor or deliver in a way that does not intend the death of that child. Yeah. Dr. Francis, you used a term several uh, minutes ago that uh, I, I bet the vast majority of our listeners know what it means, but it'd be interesting to be able to go into it because there may be some that have heard the term, but don't know the term ectopic pregnancy. They may have heard it and said, oh, that's bad. Uh, but if you've never had a child before and you've never gone through all that conversation, uh, you may think, okay, I, I've heard it, but I'm afraid to ask the question, what is that? And then also not just what is it, but what does that really mean on it? What, once that actually occurs, what medically has to happen at that point? Yeah, absolutely. So an ectopic pregnancy very simply just means um, a situation where the embryo has implanted somewhere other than the uterine cavity where it's supposed to be. Um, the most common location for that would be in the fallopian tube. That's about 95% of cases, but there are other areas in the body that the embryo can implant, the ovary, the cervix, sometimes even in the abdominal cavity. Those, thankfully, are very rare. Um, so normally when we're talking about topics, we're talking about tubal pregnancies. And the reason that that's significant is because um, you know, when, when God made our bodies, he made the uterus really a miraculous organ. It is the only organ in our bodies that can expand like it does to accommodate a growing baby, you know, up to, you know, sometimes I've delivered a 12 pound baby before. I mean, it's unbelievable that the uterus can stretch that much or for multiples, you know, things like that. But it's the only organ in the body that can do that. And so the problem when the, when the baby implants in the fallopian tube is that that fallopian tube has a very limited capacity for expansion. And so at some point then as the pregnancy grows, as the placenta sort of invades the wall of the tube, that tube is gonna burst. And um, there is a lot of blood flow going to a uterus and fallopian tubes when a woman is pregnant. And so that actually leads to life-threatening bleeding in the abdomen. And this is a condition, it's not that rare actually, it's one in 50 pregnancies in the US. So I think people think of it as a kind of a rare thing, but it's actually not. Um, and it's something that I have taken care of, again, hundreds of times and seen women that had they not arrived to the hospital when they did, they would have died. It's still one of the leading causes of maternal mortality in the first trimester, even here in the U.S. with, you know, with excellent health care. So that's diagnosed, as you mentioned, and it's in the first trimester. It's very, fairly early. Uh, How is that typically caught? And is that an abortion when you're actually medically treating for an ectopic pregnancy? 
Yeah, so I'll start with the second part. So, it, you know, it's not an abortion for a couple of reasons. One is that when we're treating mom, we're intending to save her life. We're not intending to end that child's life. And and if at some point we ever have the medical technology that we can save those babies, that would be great. And we would do that. But we don't have that that capability right now. The other thing is that in the vast majority of cases of ectopic pregnancy, when they're diagnosed, that baby has actually already passed. Um, and so oftentimes it's more akin to a miscarriage um, than it would be to, you know, a living pregnancy inside of the uterus. So um, now there are there are times, and I've had them, where you still see the baby's heartbeat. And, and, you know, that's certainly, again, a very tragic situation because you know that your treatment is, is going to then lead to the death of that child. But, you know, we have to intervene. We have no other choice. So, um, so you know, that's kind of what we're dealing with when we're taking care of them. But how they're diagnosed is really through a variety of ways. Sometimes we diagnose them incidentally, meaning the woman just came in for routine care and she got an early ultrasound and and we saw that the pregnancy was outside of the uterus. Sometimes they'll present with um, spotting, sometimes some abdominal pain, just depending if they're actively rupturing their ectopic pregnancy, then oftentimes they're in significant um, abdominal, having significant abdominal pain, maybe in shock um, from the blood loss, things like that. Yeah, but there's not a single state that's even discussing banning ectopic pregnancy treatments or considering that an abortion. Every single state that's out there, they even talks about the life of the mother, like our my state does uh, in Oklahoma. When they're talking about life of the mother, that's part of life of the mother is that actual treatment. And it's an incredibly painful, difficult moment, uh, but that's not considered an abortion. No, it's not. And, you know, it would be considered under emergency care. You know, of course, we're facing this new EMTALA regulation from the Biden administration, you know, stating that that abortion services would be necessary for emergency care. But it, it that's simply not the case. You know, what they're referencing is miscarriages that that have heavy bleeding or ruptured ectopic pregnancies, which, as you said, are, are not abortions and are not outlawed by any state law that is currently on the books. And and I've told a couple people that if there was ever a state that was trying to outlaw ectopic pregnancy treatment, I would be the first one to get on a plane and go to that state and say why I was opposed to that. Because this, again, it's not an abortion. And it's our job as, as physicians to, to take care of our patients and to save their lives when we need to. Can I switch the subject a little bit medically on this? Because you mentioned it's one in 50 pregnancies is unfortunately an ectopic pregnancy. So that, that that's such a high number there. Yeah. How does that line up with the chemical abortions that are now being promoted? And so many organizations are saying, well, you won't go into a clinic anymore for an abortion. We're going to send you this cocktail of drugs. We'll just mail it to you. There's been a big push to say, you don't even need to see a doctor. Just take these medicines in this order, and then your body will abort this child, and you'll just be done with it. Where does that line up with ectopic pregnancies? That's a great question. And, you know, I think there's several things that play into this. So to, to really talk about it, we actually have to go back a couple of years because I think it's important for people to understand that this push for, quote unquote, self-managed abortions or no visit abortions is not happening because Roe was overturned. It started two years ago when the American College of OBGYNs actually sued the FDA over their restrictions over medication abortions that required a, a woman to be seen in person for an in-person evaluation before receiving these medications. Unfortunately, they won. And then these pills were available online. The danger in that is that these women either have a telehealth visit with a, with a medical professional, that's best case scenario, 
Worst case scenario, they just answer a few questions on a website and then these pills are mailed to them. One of the big risks of this is that, again, like you said, like we said, one in 50 pregnancies are ectopic pregnancies. And ACOG states that you can screen for ectopic pregnancies simply on symptoms and risk factors. However, we know that about 50% of women with ectopic pregnancies will not have these. And they need the only way to diagnose them is maybe physical exam, but really they need an ultrasound to diagnose it. And the real danger in that is that the symptoms of a medication abortion are exactly the same as, a, as the symptoms of a ruptured ectopic pregnancy, wow. abdominal pain and bleeding. And so women are going to be told if they're you know, taking these abortion pills, you're going to have abdominal pain, you're going to have bleeding, that's normal, just stay at home, here's the normal amount of bleeding. So they're going to have these symptoms and they're going to stay at home and lose precious minutes that could lead to them dying because they're bleeding into their abdomens. And, and as I said before, I've seen patients in the emergency room that had they arrived at the hospital even 20, 30 minutes later, they would have been dead because they arrived at the hospital just in time for us to take them to surgery to treat their ectopic pregnancy. So this is a huge concern. And I, I think we should note it's the same people that are spreading the lie that women are not going to be able to be treated for ectopic pregnancies if a state restricts abortion that are also advocating for women not to be screened for ectopic pregnancy when they get these pills online. And the other real big risk with this is that um, even ACOG acknowledges that about 50% of women will be wrong about how far along in the pregnancy they are based on their last menstrual period. The reason that's important for these pills is because if a woman takes these pills at 10 weeks, which is the upper limit of approval from the FDA right now, her risk of needing a surgery to complete her abortion is about one in 10. If she's just three weeks off, just three weeks later at 13 weeks of pregnancy, her risk of needing a surgical completion of her abortion goes up to one in two to three women, which is wow. a huge jump in just three weeks. And these are being marketed to women who don't have access to healthcare. So women in rural areas who maybe their closest hospital with surgical services is, you know, two, two and a half hours away. These are the women that are going to die. And I think it's so important for, you know, people who are listening to this to understand this is not because Roe was overturned. This has been the push of the abortion industry for several years, but it really has ramped up in the last couple of years. Well, there's been some dialogue about um, some of the chemical abortion, medical abortion pills uh, that if you're the wrong blood type, there's been this dialogue to say there's also additional risks there. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so um, women that have an RH negative blood type, anytime they have a pregnancy, regardless of how it ends, whether it ends in miscarriage or abortion or term delivery, they're at risk if that baby is RH positive blood type, they're at risk of developing antibodies that won't necessarily impact that particular pregnancy but their next pregnancy, those antibodies can actually attack the baby's blood cells and destroy the baby's blood cells um, and lead to severe anemia. And this used to be a, a pretty significant cause of neonatal death uh, before we screened for it and treated it. Now there's a medication we can give women called Rogam. And, and the, the traditional you know, medical standard of practice is that for any woman who has bleeding in early pregnancy or a early miscarriage or even an abortion, that if she's an Rh negative blood type, she automatically get Rogam because we can't test the blood type of the baby in that situation. And so that has been the standard of care. It's still recommended because there is a small chance that she could be sensitized even that early in the pregnancy, especially with an invasive procedure like an abortion. But the problem is now with women not having to be seen in person and being able to just order these pills online is 
Who's checking their blood type? Who's checking to see if they have any other contraindication to taking these medications? And then if they are RH negative, who's giving them that Rogam? And are they being adequately counseled that if they don't take it, that could have an impact on their future pregnancies? Yeah. Those are all serious medical issues uh, in conversations. There's just so much dialogue out there where people are just throwing things around on the internet. Of course, of course, we always know we can trust everything posted on social media. It's always true. Uh, but there, there's just all these different comments that are thrown around out there uh, that people seem to be so flippant about that there's just a lot of medical counsel behind it uh, that's just not getting out. So I appreciate what you and 7,000 other physicians are doing uh, as you're trying to be able to answer questions and to be able to engage. For Steve and I, we're working with people across the country that are dealing with the legislative issues on this because the Dobbs decision did not ban abortion in America. And I think people are figuring that out now. It didn't stop all abortion in America. It literally turned it back over to legislatures, whether it be federal legislators or, or state legislatures. That's really where it's going to begin. And there's multiple states that are in current conversation right now. And people are voting. People are engaging. There's all kinds of dialogue about it. But the conversations circle back around about a child in this. It's not just about convenience because for so long, abortion dialogue has been about what's convenient, what's convenient. Well, now it's not about convenience anymore. Now it's about What's moral? What's ethical? What what happens to this child in this conversation? Where do things go? So as you've seen different things in different states, Steve, what are you seeing in the different states and the dialogue, and where do you think this goes? Yeah, well, first of all, it goes back to the discussion we were having with Dr. Francis. There's so much misinformation that's being spread around the country. The, the brilliance of Justice Alito's opinion, you know, his intellect, uh, his profound understanding of the Constitution and history, first of all, is the first is where we start when he said there is no constitutional right to an abortion. And you know, he set what was just a horrible decision from 1973. He set it straight. And we go back to our founding fathers in this great country that in our Declaration of Independence talked about these certain inalienable rights, <laughs> the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And then, in the opinion, he said, we're going to return the power back to the people. And he's going to return the power back to the people by letting elected officials decide where to draw the lines and put these protections. That's exactly the right place. They, they recognize this is a contentious issue. It's deeply personal. But we, as America, we stand in, you know, in, a, in a terrible a small percentage of the world of just one of seven countries allowing you know, late-term abortions, right. the same as North Korea and China, the United States. Do we want to be on that list? No. 47 out of 50 European countries have stronger protections for babies in the United States of America. So we're really just bringing us back to really where the modern world is. We've been out on the, on the edge on the issue of, of abortion and of life since 1973. Now, these, this battle is moving back to the states, and this is why you know, in, this, in this moment uh, in history, uh, we're going to have these discussions, and uh, Senator Langford, what you are doing here with this kind of dialogue with Dr. Francis is so helpful, because as, as you, you so often say, we want to take the temperature down in this debate. Yeah. Let's actually talk. Yeah, I mean, there, 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 there's really been nothing political said here in this dialogue. Yeah. This is getting back to the science. It's getting back to the compassion. What is the right thing to do for babies and for moms, for families? This is the kind of dialogue we need to continue to have. When I see young people come to our office, we, you know, Senator Langford and I have uh, groups 
who come from high schools and middle schools to uh, to Washington D.C. Thankfully, and, they're coming again. Post COVID, they're coming back again. We're, we're seeing really nice them again. See yeah, the, the hallways are full again nice. with the students, right? And and inevitably, we get the, the question about what happened, certainly with this decision, because you always open it up for questions from the students. Sure. And I find one of the best things to do is have them take their smartphones out and say, just Google 15-week baby. That's what the Dobbs decision was. They drew the line at 15 weeks in Mississippi. And you look at that image of a 15-week baby. I don't have to say any more. I may have a, somebody, uh, a young woman who's, or a young man who's very you know, pro-choice, pro-abortion. They look at that image, and they don't have any more to say because it's so compelling because of technology now. That is a life that is a life that we're talking about here in this debate. Yeah, it, it makes a big difference just to be able to see this. Uh, Dr. France, i got one more quick question for you, and it's super simple. So this is just like layup softball for you. I have folks that catch me that say, well, your, your opinion is that that child in the womb is a child because of your religion. Your religious experience actually brings you that. There's nothing in science that would say that that's really a child until it's born or until they, 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 they literally will just pull something out of the hat. And then they'll just say until they're viable or until their birth or, or whatever it may be. W- what does science say about where life begins? Because I know what Steve and I are talking about is states are arguing about where life begins from a legislative role and what to be able to do on that. But you live and breathe on this on a science base. Where does life begins from the, from a science perspective? Yeah. Um, so the science is exceedingly clear. It really is undisputed scientific fact that at the moment of fertilization, a new distinct living and whole human being comes into existence. May not be a fully developed human being yet, um, but even when we're born, we're not fully developed. Uh, So the science tells us that when two human beings create something else, the only thing that they can create is another human being. And, you know, so the question of when life begins is actually a scientific one, not a religious one. Now, we can talk about the worth and the value of human beings. That may be informed by someone's religious views. Um, but I think that we can we can all agree that human beings are valuable, they're worthy, they should have equal value and worth regardless of their age, their location, their level of ability, their level of development. And um, and so, you know, everything has to rest on when does a human being come into existence? And science tells us in an exceedingly clear fashion that the moment that that happens is at the moment of fertilization. And so as such, you know, I think that these preborn human beings deserve every protection. And and I said recently to somebody that my opposition to abortion is no more religious than my opposition to the murder of a toddler or an adult. My opposition to murder is the fact that it ends the life of an innocent human being. And, and that's not informed by my religion. It's informed by, you know, again, by science, the fact that, uh, that those are in fact human beings. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I would tell you from someone who worked like I did for 20 years, excuse me, for 20 years with teenagers, I can assure you working with middle school students all that time, those brains of those boys are not fully developed even in middle school. <laughs> I can I can 100% guarantee you that there's still more development going on. And, and I, yeah. I will often go back to people and say, <clears throat> at that moment of fertilization, there's DNA that's different, that's literally mm-hmm. never existed on earth before. That, that This unique DNA is there. It's different than the mom's, different than the dad. And in that mom's body, every single cell in her body has the exact same DNA, except for those cells. And those right. cells are different. And the difference is because it's a different person. Uh, it's completely unique DNA that's there. And so that that, that is the, the science that I've seen, that I've read, obviously you live and breathe this all the time, that I've seen and read 
pushes me back to be able to say conception because the science says conception. Everything else is 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 trying to find some other spot there uh, to say viability or birth or 10 weeks or at a heartbeat. or Everything else is trying to figure out some other spot to be able to put it. But the science is clearest and cleanest when you've got unique D- DNA and dividing cells and the development that's actually happening at that spot. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and, you know, all those other points in time either are shifting or they're points that people don't agree on, you know, and and I, you would, I know that both of you know this, but, you know, when Roe was decided, that point of viability really was at about 28 weeks. Now we're down to certainly 22 weeks even. We've got a, a little boy who's alive who was born at 21 weeks and two days. And so that line, thankfully, with improvements in medical technology and medical science, that line is shifting backwards. And so, as you said, we have to pick a point that is the same for everyone if we want to have true human equality. And that point is that moment when that unique DNA complement comes into existence. Well, Dr. Francis, can't can't say thank you enough for the ongoing work that you do all the time uh, and your engagement on this dialogue, trying to bring facts to bear. Uh, I've seen you on panels where you're literally the only pro-life voice in a panel that's actually called in. And you not just hold your ground, you speak the truth in love. And you actually respond to people. You're, you're not angry about life. You're you're passionate about life and about children and families. And you come and just bring the facts and the information and uh, and do it in such a great, kind way. So I really appreciate your engagement on that and uh, for how you continue to be able to speak out. And for Steve Danes, what you continue to be able to do uh, legislatively here, working in your own state, working across uh, the country and engaging with other legislatures. Uh, you have a bill even that does the child tax credit for for pregnant moms, it, it takes the yeah. child tax credit now begins at birth. You're the one that helps push. Hey, there's a lot of expense before that child is ever born, <laughs> well, well, buying the crib, getting everything set yeah. up and all those things uh, yeah. that that child tax credit should actually begin when the child begins. And uh, so you've even got policy areas that you work on here uh, that I think are incredibly important. So, Steve, thanks for staying engaged in the policy, yeah. engaged in the issue of life. Uh, in your own family uh, and in dialogue around the country. <laughs> well, I just had there. There are a lot of moms and dads nodding their heads right there at that moment about the expense part. <laughs> you know, we, we've been we've been we've walked the journey of four pregnancies, two boys and two girls, and uh, we've seen you know how, how difficult it can be at times. You know, getting the, the the car seat, the cribs, and everything that's associated with a new baby. And let's give that that mom and and that dad there a break and allow them to get prepared. Uh, for those additional expenses they're going to have with the, 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 that new life in the family. Yeah, those those babies are costly. They, really are. they <laughs> don't just cost time and uh, energy they're, and they're sleep. They're so worth it, though, right? <laughs> they are. They are so worth it. When you, uh, I, I tell parents all the time that are expecting the first time, when when it's just you and them and you're holding them and looking into those eyes, there is no substitute for that moment. No, there's not. Uh, looking into the eyes of that baby and uh, and realizing the immense beauty and majesty and wonder of looking into their eyes. Uh, so I, I, I pray for folks as they get to that moment, as they get a chance to be able to look in those eyes, uh, that uh, folks that are, are abortion considering uh, will consider the facts and the science, but also think about the future and mm-hmm. uh, the opportunities that'll be there. Many children are born in very difficult situations. Yeah. Many children are born into poverty. Uh, quite frankly, I grew up in a single-parent household where it was really a stretch for my mom. It was really a stretch financially for us. Uh, to be able to struggle through and living with my grandparents for a while and all the things that she had to be able to do. Mm. But she made a choice. 
and uh, and I am the result of that choice of a life that is here, uh, having the opportunity to be able to serve other people. And so uh, looking into the future for those children is really, really significant. Y'all, thanks for joining us in the dialogue and the conversation. Hopefully this is helpful and brings new information to you, brings some new insight uh, and some things for you to be able to think about, research about, and go do some more follow-up on. And uh, glad to be able to be in the dialogue. If you want to be able to send us a message back to say, hey, were you thinking about this or whatever it may be, feel free to be able to do that. You can always reach reach out to us at langford.com. Senate.gov, Langford.senate.gov, and uh, you get our email address there. You you have our uh, links to all of our social media pages, which at Senator Langford. Uh, you can even send us a letter. We we even accept those things. The post office would be excited if you would actually you know put a stamp. I almost said lick a stamp, but you don't lick stamps anymore. So that you would actually put a stamp on a letter and mail it. But our address is there. It's going to take like. I don't know, two weeks to be able to get irradiated and come through the Capitol uh, and to be able to get all the security checks on it. But you're welcome to do that or call our offices. All the numbers are there. Again, you you can subscribe to this conversation. We change up the topics pretty frequently on this of the main issues of the day that are happening. Uh, but you can subscribe at uh, iTunes, Spotify, or SoundCloud and just be able to keep you up to date. Again, all the social media platforms at Senator Langford. We just make the same request I normally do on social media. Don't believe all the comments that you read as we go through it. Uh, and that's true for any place you go on the social media. Dr. Francis, thanks for joining us very much today. Thanks for your ongoing work. Steve Daines, uh, thank you for what you're doing and leading Montana and uh, your incredible leadership here in the Senate as well and for being such a great friend and ally in the work. So God bless y'all. Thanks for being a part of the conversation and the breakdown. Thank you.